Deviant Women. This is the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I tricked you into alternating with you me. You did. I win. I did it. I didn't even think. I just followed you. I'm like a lemming. <laughs> anyway. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, you know. All right. Yeah? Yeah. Excellent. Sem- semester's going. It's getting busy. Oy. Things are happening. It's getting on in the year. Yeah. It's already freaking nailing the end of March. <laughs> It's only episode two, though, so I feel like it's funny how time stretches and uh, compresses itself in these weird, wonderful ways, isn't it? It's the mind boggles. Yeah. The mind boggles. So speaking of the way that time stretches itself in strange, strange ways. How are you going to make this relevant? Well, we're talking about Valley Myers, right? Yes, we are. The artist, bohemian, dancer extraordinaire mm-hmm. fascinating figure and i think time for valley myers is probably a concept that maybe stretches and compresses itself in strange wonderful ways Ooh, interesting and existential all at once yeah well i just think that she's the type of figure who lives in another world yeah 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 you know she's she's not of the planet earth yeah she came to us <laughs> from somewhere else to share her brilliant art and just be this fantastical fairy spirit in the world. Otherworldly thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm very excited to talk about Valley Myers today because she's an artist that I am quite fascinated by. Well, I see, when I picked Valley Myers, I, I was just like, oh, Alicia will know her. <laughs> like, she will, I, I have very little doubt that Alicia grew up in the 90s with like Valley Myers pictures on the wall or at least a book or something you know yeah and you were quite right and i was just should i share my silly story Please. just telling lauren before my story of uh teenage photo shoots i had a friend who was a photographer and we did a photo shoot and in the in the photo shoot i don't know why we decided to th- to do this but in the end we ended up drawing like a valley myers mustache on me <laughs> So, because if you don't know, Valley Myers is quite famous in her later life. She tattooed this sort of like moustache around her mouth. Yeah, she did it herself too. Didn't she self tattooed it. Yeah. God, Ow. on her face. Yeah. Well, I didn't quite do that. We just drew it on with like lip liner. Oh, did you like do it yourself? Eyeliner. Or did she? Did your friend do it? No, my friend did it. Oh. Did a little eyeliner, but. Well, that's not very Valley Myers. It's not very Valley Myers at all. But if I ever find those photos, I won't share them with anyone. (laughs) I'll just put them in a drawer at the very bottom where no one can see. But I think there's a lot of teenage girls. I mean, I think I kind of – I was maybe a little bit too young in the 90s when – uh, oh, although she was very influential through the 70s, 80s and 90s, I think in terms of being on teenage girls' Oh, at boys. But I think bedroom. she had a bit of a renaissance in the 90s, though, didn't she? Because yep. we're getting ahead of ourselves in the story here. But she had a bit of a, a return to yeah. Australia, and I think she became quite 
you know, the it girl yeah. again. Yeah, because I think by then she was known as this figure who is, I guess, leads me to introducing her in these big, broad sweeping terms um, as the witch of Postiano, this woman with the flaming red hair like a mane with her fat silver clinking rings on her fingers mm. and her eyeline, like eye, this coal yeah. eyeliner ringing her eyes. Black, black eyes. Such black eyes. Yeah. And she was, she had established herself as an artist by the, well, definitely by the 90s. But she she wasn't always like this. She lived her life as the, she was like the original hippie proto-bohemian environmentalist who kind of beat all of the movements. You know, she was already there. She was a beatnik before they were beatniks. She was a hippie before they were hippies. And her influence is outstanding. Mm. And there's so many people who have been influenced by her work and continue mm. to kind of draw on her yeah. today. Um, so where do we start? Where are we going to start the well, story of well, Myers? I'm going to start uh, back in Australia. Hooray. In Sydney, in Canterbury in Sydney, in August 1930, where she was born. Her mother was a violinist and her father was a marine wireless operator. Now, That's a random thing to be, a marine wireless operator. Yeah, I wonder if that means that he was working the radios on ships. Yeah, I don't I know. I guess that's probably all that is. I don't know. Or he lived under the ocean <gasps> in one of those dome. No, I don't think so. That's not it. <laughs> don't know where I'm going with that. He would explain Valley's otherworldliness. Yeah, that's true. She's actually half mermaid. <laughs> no, she'd definitely be half fairy if she was half anything. Half fairy. Sure. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, he was a marine something or other. And right? she was this girl who was very introspective and very into, you know, these kind of fairy worlds and things. And she she didn't, like, love formal education as we <laughs> Who does? Who does love formal education? Actually, Uh, I quite love formal education. Yeah, we never escaped it. So (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We're still Um, doing that. She loved drawing and she loved dancing. Now, the family moved to Box Hill in Melbourne when she was 11, Uh, but she just wanted to dance. She was like, I don't care about school. I don't care about studies. Give me. I just want to dance. I just want to dance. I'm doing Dazed and Confused. I just want to dance. (laughs) And also remember, Melbourne in the 40s was like a very conservative place. We've been to conservative Melbourne before, haven't we? Yeah. I with other we artists. have. We've been there with other artists. This is what happens. Conservative Melbourne turns you into an artist. And we're going to follow a very, very, very similar story out of conservative Melbourne. We are. But as Agnes. Yeah, as Agnes. This Agnes is very Kutzer, Agnes. Another Australian artist grew up stifling conservatism of Melbourne in yeah. the early half of the 20th century. And left to go to Paris, just like our Valley Myers. But before she does, before Again, she sets getting foot ahead of on ourselves. the ship, she wanted to dance. And when she was 14, she left home and worked in factories to support her dancing. <laughs> she left home and worked in factories. I'm like, but I thought you said she wanted to dance. <laughs> there were dance factories. Yes. Yes. Yes, sure. Yes. Like in um like your footloose. Yeah, that's right. In those big empty warehouses, yep. she was carving it up like Kevin Bacon. Yes. No, she wasn't. She was paying her way through dance lessons. Um, and it worked out because as a teen, she became the leading dancer for the Melbourne Modern Ballet Company. As a teen. Yeah. Good, good times. Good job. What? No, cut out me saying good times. I don't know why I'm saying that. Do you want to say something else instead no. as a segue? Yep. I sure don't. 
as as a teen, that's impressive. And if you look at images, so um, a lot of the information that I've got today comes from the book Nightflower, The um, Life and Art of Valley Myers. And this book is incredible. And I highly recommend that you get it if you are at all interested in anything that we've had to say about Valley Myers, because it contains essays about her from all these people who knew her. And it also contains a bunch of photographs of her and um, uh, prints of her art. And, and it has a really pretty cover. Oh, it's a gorgeous cover. Such a nice cover. We'll put it on Instagram. Let's do that. We'll grab it. Mm-hmm. And in this book, you can see the photographs of her dancing as um, as a teenager, as a young woman. And you can already see, and again, emphasizing the conservative, stifling Melbourne culture that she's from, <laughs> this unbridled creativity and energy and i think when you see still images of dancers but you can see that coming you know how you can kind of tell the difference between that dancer's energy when it is being very poised and very precise Mm -hmm. versus when it is being like just fucking exuberant Mm -hmm. and amazing and not to say that being precise is not amazing but you know there's a a wildness or a freeness yeah Yeah. Mm. i think that really comes through in in her Um, She's got this kind of already has this gypsy aura about her. And there's a newspaper article that praises her for her exuberance and creative impulse. It says she has style, grace and fluency. 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 So this was an article from? From Melbourne. From Melbourne. Right. At the time. Yeah. In the late 40s when she was about 18 or 19. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Because as we say, she... Like some of our previous deviant women, uh, foresaw perhaps this, the limited opportunities of Melbourne. Can you do the entire episode in that voice? Like, the entire episode speaking like this. And she saw a brighter future for herself in Paris. In Paris! Yeah, I'm going to say Quickly, that to Paris! <laughs> she jumped on a ship at 19 years old with almost... Nothing on her except the clothes on her back, a portfolio of her artwork, and a crisp £10 note. Yeah, right. I wonder what a £10 note would have been worth at the time. Gosh. £10 at the time. At the time. (laughs) That answers the question for itself. I don't know how many sausage rolls you could buy with it, though. Not a lot. Like, not heaps. No. 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 You could buy a ticket all the way from England to Australia with ten pounds, though. You know when you, but you know when you hear these stories and people like are like, oh, you know, my accommodation cost me one pound a yeah. week or whatever. Like I reckon that's what my my mum and dad always used to say. They're like, yeah. oh, you know, we lived in rooms for one pound a week or yeah. whatever. I well, it would have wouldn't have got you too far. Though. It it didn't get her far, and I'm going to explain that in a moment. Hey. If if you'll allow if me, I would just shut up and allow, allow me to just explain the ship situation just for a. a, a tiny minute we'll come back to the 10 pounds sorry no mm-hmm. it's fine don't apologize yeah. it's good it's good where it's a rapport it's okay yeah good it's Excellent. a conversation okay mm-hmm. this is what the listeners are here for i hope yeah yeah on board if they want on board like in a ship yeah um okay so on the ship she already kind of made a name for herself because she would wander around barefoot and in these quite revealing clothing like <laughs> short skirts and, and things like that and it was showing kind of such an impression that there was even something published in a newspaper back in London <gasps> about this girl who was like wandering around wearing almost nothing. Oh my ship. God. And you know, today you get on a ship, you'd be surprised if anyone was fully clothed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very different times. So different. And what I also really love about this story, my great aunt um, also left oh. on a ship when she was 19 mm-hmm. Um 
And I, I've written like a kind of fictional account of this before, imagining what it might have been like on this on this ship in the kind of early 50s. And I just, oh, gosh, it's fascinating to me. It's such a long way away. And from Australia, the rest of the world was, A, ages away. Oh, yeah. And B, like just ex- so exotic and foreign and strange and mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah. Like. Australia these days is still very far away, but at least we are able to get culture and things from lots of other places. Whereas, Mm. gosh, back then. Such isolation. Totally. So she arrived in Paris and, of course, she settled into the left bank called the Rive Gauche. I hope I'm saying that correct. Which in the. You um, do the French. You should know. Yeah, it's been a long time, though. Okay. Yeah. Um, she specifically settled in the Bohemian colony of Saint-Germain-des-Prés and immersed herself in the Bohemian scene. Okay. Now here's where we get to the 10 pounds because um, you can Im- when you first think of, okay, oh, my God, she's arrived in Paris. She's on the left bank. It's amazing. She's in the Bohemian scene. She must have been having such a great time. No. 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 She had 10 pounds to her name. Yeah. She used it in a week. Oh, so that's how long 10 pounds is going to last you. Lasts, now we know. Lasts it's going to last you a week. A week in Paris. After that, she was unable to get a job. So she thought she was going to be a dancer. That's yes. what she went to Paris to. She went to Paris thinking, I'm going to dance in Paris. Absolutely, yes, yeah. she did. And so she's there and she can't find work as a dancer. Yeah, and so she ends up on the streets. Mm. She lived on the streets for three years. Three years? Yeah, surviving mostly on milk and bread. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So as much as we kind of romanticize these bohemian, mm-hmm. you know, kind of left bank lives. Yeah, getting tuberculosis and dying slowly in a loft. Yeah. Well, she didn't get She didn't even she didn't even get a loft. Well, she eventually did get um like a hotel apartment. Oh. Um and she didn't get tuberculosis, but she did spend 3 years sequestered away while she had an opium addiction. Okay, so yeah, that's the other option. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So she and literally like she 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 describes the fact that she didn't leave. Basically didn't leave that hotel room for 3 years. Barely saw sunlight in this time. And so did that start when she was living on the streets, that opium addiction? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, so when she was living on the streets, this is before I think she had kind of sequestered herself away, she was still dancing. So um, mm. she would go to jazz clubs every night and dance all no- literally all night. And this was, well, literally to keep her alive. Yeah. She said, we didn't hang out in cafes because it was hip. We didn't have anywhere else to go. Dancing kept me alive. Mm. And again, in the book, um, Nightflower, you can see images of her dancing. And these are also documented in Ed van der Elsken's photo book, Love on the Left Bank, which was um, published in the 50s. And it chronicles the story of fictional Anne, who is portrayed by Valley Myers. Um, and it is a story of these, these youth in the streets of Paris, mm. these beatniks, hipsters, um, and their lives dancing in clubs and, and living this, you mm. know, bohemian life and i suppose as well like dancing in clubs at like that keeps you off the streets at night as well like there's a safety absolutely a a level of safety there you're not sleeping on the streets open to attack you're Mm. at least you're somewhere with a sense of safety for the night yep you're safe you're warm yeah and they couldn't 
if they fell asleep in the in the clubs, they'd get kicked out. Yeah. So you had to dance. You're like, this is what she means. Like dancing kept me alive. Like yeah. dancing kept her awake and inside. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also a kind of spiritually kept her alive as mm. well. Because again, if you look at these photos, they are wonderful. Like they are so energetic. She's dancing as though she's under this like hypnotic spell. Um, and you can see her dancing, not just with her body, but you can see it's her whole being mm-hmm. that is dancing. Um, and she was also published in a series of portraits by George Plimpton for the Paris Review. Uh, and he describes how bartenders in the um, little, and I hope I pronounce this correctly, uh, Boitz, I don't know, hey. where she danced, nicknamed her Le Chat, which oh, is the cat. the cat. And she was also called La Bette. What's that? Is that a bat? That was my entire guess was Bette is a bat. It's a beast. Oh, very similar. Like Belle La Bette. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Others refer to her as La Morte Vive because of her white face and coal eyes the like, living dead uh yes the living dead because she had this like how pale- is that for translation <laughs> she had pale makeup and she wore these really dark mm. coal around her mm-hmm. eyes which she said protected her against evil spirits all right then so she's hanging out with the parisian beatniks like um jean-paul sartre jean genet tennessee williams who isn't and hey? tennessee williams was so like taken by her that he um, based the character of Carol in Orpheus Descending on Her. Ah, oh, mm. how interesting. And actually, so Valley Myers said of Tennessee Williams that he was the saddest or sentimental man I have ever known. That, I would believe that. Yeah, I believe that too. I totally believe that, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so she's hanging out with artists. She's having a great time. She's starting to paint during this time as well, um, particularly black and white drawings. Did you say she's having a great time? Well, like with the dancing and hanging out with the artist part of it. Okay. Not the living on the streets and getting addicted to opium. Well, I was so setting much. it up for the okay. other half, which okay, is, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. there's positives, but there's also a lot of negatives. Yeah. Because along with the living on the streets, she also was in and out of um, like jail for vagrancy. Mm. And so at 21, she decided that perhaps Paris was not her city. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the best. Not for her. Not working out so well. Yeah. Um, she's like, okay, I'll resume my uh, travels of... Europe. So she she went to Vienna, mm-hmm. and in Vienna she met her first major love, her oh, future Vienna. husband. Sorry, sorry. No, that's don't apologize. Don't apologize for that. Okay, good. Um, Rudy Rapold, a handsome young Austrian architect. Oh, an architect. Mm. She had also been kicked, like technically kicked out of Paris. She wasn't allowed back in because of the vagrancy and the. Oh stuff right. uh so she and rudy married when she was 25 but this allowed her to go back to paris because she was able to change her name oh okay yep mm-hmm. and rudy was actually really instrumental in helping to get her clean so he helped get her off opiates back on her feet he helped her organize like her passport and her finances and so they moved back to paris together for a little while but very soon they moved together to Italy. Mm, and this is this is where it all gets very fantasy world, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because they found themselves a little valley in Positano, which was basically inaccessible. They called it Il Porto. And they moved into a 14th century monk's hut in a mountain. <laughs> As you do. They renovated, they turned it into like this Moorish style house 
and began adopting all manner of animals and creatures. And they kind of created this isolated paradise for themselves. And this part of her life goes hand in hand with her art. Like this is, I think, as much an intrinsically part of, of Valley Meyer's identity as her artworks are is this home and the animals that inhabited it with her. Because mm. so up until now, like she's been painting, mm. obviously, the whole time. This is part and parcel of who she is. And I suppose now we're getting to this stage where she's kind of gathering together her little Noah's Ark of animals. But also these animals feature in her art as well, don't they? Like they're a huge part of what she paints. Yeah, absolutely. She's often her portraits often include her animals and she painted a lot of portraits of her animals. So particularly her fox, which she named Foxy. It's very, very original name for a fox. Um, that's fine. Foxy was with her for 14 years and, mm. and Valley Myers was just devastated when Foxy died, mm. which I think we can all imagine. You have a pet. Mm-hmm. It's a part of the family. She also had cats. She had dogs, a 100 year old tortoise named Winnie. <gasps> And she's also often painted with owls, with roosters, toads and snakes. So animals were a really important part of her yeah. identity. This sounds like, kind of sounds like my idea of paradise, just moving away and gathering animals to me, like yeah. just a flock of many different animals and I'd be happy. And it was her paradise, I think. Like her and Rudy lived alone together there with their animals for ages and they wanted to develop it as as a kind of wildlife sanctuary mm. and it, they, did, it, it did become a wildlife sanctuary it did. Didn't, yeah yeah it did so in 1971 she met uh, a young young man named Gianni uh, Menachetti and he he was just 18 when they met but he was just like bowled over by this woman who was Valley Myers he describes her as being an apparition from fairyland she was a pure spirit like a fox's spirit he's got this short video on YouTube that you can find called his savage mistress where he describes what it was like when they met and describes a little bit about their life together and what has happened to the land since then because he still lives there and he still looks after it because she was like 20 something years older than him mm-hmm. and they became lovers in case that wasn't already clear <laughs> and they met he had been a poet uh, as a young man and he went to naples to study and he says that fate intervenes he believes very strongly in fate he met a tibetan lama at the naples university who introduced him to a friend of valleys who brought him to the valley in 1971 and so they lived together, the three of them, for a little while. She did eventually divorce Rudy mm. and she and Gianni continued to live together. But I don't think that it was a necessarily exclusive relationship because she did uh, – she does talk about having had many lovers mm-hmm. um, and she painted her lovers quite a lot as well. Mm. So, yeah, so she's in this paradise home that she's created and she would work on her paintings and drawings really meticulously – Um, She's quite famous for how meticulously she would work on them. And she painted with goose feather on like handmade Amalfi paper. She worked mostly in pen and and watercolor. And she was also like as meticulous with her makeup as she was with her painting. Yeah, because you always see her. Like I know we mentioned this before about that white makeup and those black, black eyes. And then later on as well when she has the the moustache tattoo. But – Something I um, remember reading about her saying or hearing her saying in an interview was talking about that makeup and about 
how her mother used to say that she was putting on her war paint. Oh. And that really resonated to me because that's what my mother used to say about makeup as well. She's like, you're putting on your war paint. Wow. Because when you were talking about before about how she put the makeup on to sort of keep away the evil spirits. Yeah. Like there is something to that in that thinking about, you know, doing yourself up, putting on that persona, putting on that. I think wall paint is a better way to think of it than a mask. You know, mm. people think about makeup as this mask. I'm going on a makeup tangent, right? Go ahead. No, she loved makeup. It's totally relevant. And she used Lancome, by the way, if anyone's interested is to know. Is that right? Yep. Are they cruelty free? I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> but I do think that this is an interesting thing because I think that when you think about somebody like Valley Myers, who wasn't just an artist, but was also going back to this wonderful figure of the muse that we yeah. love, but who was also herself a muse. And a muse for, for herself. A muse for herself. Because, and for others. Yeah, because so yeah. much of her art is self-portraiture, yeah. but also a muse for other musicians and artists mm. as well. But when you think about kind of the way that then the physical is presented and I think this is something that we've talked about before, kind of like how we we often kind of devalue that sense of, of just playing into vanity, playing mm. into to painting yourself up, playing into presenting yourself as beautiful and made up. Yeah. And I just really love this idea of that whole concept of it being your war paint and the way that it really is putting on a persona, I suppose, and most of the photos that you see of her and most of these portraits, it's, it is that persona. It yeah. is that war paint that's presented. And also, is it necessary? Like, it's a persona, but is it also perhaps in the same way that we choose our clothing to reflect something about us? Yeah. Like, your makeup is this way of presenting yourself to the world that says, this is who I see myself as, and this is how I want you to see me. It's not about... Yeah, I agree. It's not about hiding at mm. all. It's about like this this is who I am and whether that is a persona or whether that is something that is a representation of the type of person you want other people to see you yeah. as. Yeah. There's something that I often think about, a little illustration by an artist called Harry Dodge that mm. I sometimes think about in relation to this. And it's just a, a tiny little illustration of a ghost. And it just says, and you know, stock standard little ghost in a sheet. And it just says, without this sheet, I would be invisible. Yeah. And something in that has always resonated with me. I mean, like he, he's talking about that in a very particular gender orientated way. Mm-hmm. But for me, there's something that really resonates in that, isn't there? That, you know, there's a way that we present ourselves or that's not, it's not a false presentation. It's just a way of actually being seen and yeah. making ourselves seen in yeah. the way that we want to be seen or the way that we see ourselves as well. Yes. And I think that that's so important about when I look at Valley Myers, when I look at the way she presents herself, it isn't, I mean, I know I'm talking about this word persona, but that's not what I mean because it's not, it's not. It's like it's a, it's a, it's it's her true self. Yes. In this expression. That's right. And the only tools that she has available to her to manifest this version of her true self is through her clothing and is through her makeup and is through her presentation That's of right. herself. And through her art yeah. and everything. And through everything. And this comes back to the story about her on the on the ship, you know, obviously like presenting herself in a very different way to everybody yeah. else who's on that ship. But in that there is that core sense of who she really is. And she never changed. Like this is the other thing. And, and like I kind of said when we set up the episode, she was the type of person who didn't join movements. Movements joined her. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. she was dressing like this bohemian gypsy fucking ages before it was fashionable to do so. Like she led trends that she wasn't 
kind of even probably aware of the fact that she was like leading she would just be drawn to clothing in in secondhand stores and in the village like she would walk around the village where they lived barefoot and go to the markets and just collect beautiful things Mm -hmm. that expressed something about herself yeah and then i guess that's the thing isn't it when you come to these artists is that there's this often this sense that beauty in a way is something that we shouldn't embrace. It's something we should rebel against and push back against because there's a sense of oppression attached to beauty or a sense of who is this beauty for? And we should also say she's not presenting herself as being conventionally beautiful either. Like she's not... She's not doing her makeup in the style of the 50s and Mm. 60s as what's fashionable as quote-unquote beautiful. I just want to... I think that's an important caveat on that point. But this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, just this concept of beauty and this concept of the gaze that we're making ourselves beautiful for when we are making ourselves. And I'm just thinking about the other night I went out with a friend and we were talking about makeup and she said, oh, I had my makeup on before, but it's rubbed off now. And she's like, and I was really upset because I did my makeup for you. Oh, And it's, it's kind of that sense of, you know, who are we doing it for? It's not necessarily always for this kind of idea of this male gaze. Oh, absolutely not. It's never for me. No, I think... Men assume that women wear makeup for men. I know. They don't. And I think that's right. I think there's this assumption that we dress ourselves up or paint ourselves up for a male gaze. Mm. But half the time when I dress and paint myself up to go out, by the time I've finished doing it, I'm happy to not go out anymore. (laughs) I'm like, there you go. I've done it. Yeah. I've done my makeup. I've done my hair. I've put on this dress. I look lovely. Yeah. Now I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's not, not for, for anyone it's else. not for anyone. Mm. And I think that, yeah, I just thinking about how, you know, this idea that she would paint herself up first before she would paint her pictures. Yeah. I mean, it's not. And she's not leaving. She's not leaving her heart to like, do it. Yeah. She's she, just at home painting pictures. She lives in a very isolated. No one's coming to visit. <laughs> yeah. And she's doing it for herself. Yeah. And I love that. And yeah. that's a complete tangent about. Makeup and beauty, but it's something that interests me a lot. It's something yeah. that fascinates me. But it's me. so relevant, I think, to her story because so every time you read anyone writing about her, they talk about how she was this pure and free spirit. Julia Inglis, who was one of her closest friends and who wrote the foreword to the book Nightflower, she likens her to an ancient uh, Dakini, a sky dancer who is guardian of the deeper mysteries. She writes, like the dark goddess Lilith and Kali, Valley is a truth bringer, her bright energy illuminating the darkness and smashing all that is false or a danger to nature. And she just... <laughs> That's some powerful words. It is. And I think that that is the thing about her. She wasn't... I just don't think that she gave a fuck about what anybody else thought. That's right. Ever. Yeah. She even when she was becoming successful as an artist, she didn't really care about selling her paintings. So she would leave like Il Porto to go occasionally to New York or London to sell just one or two paintings, like literally enough to pay the bills and then she'd be going back home mm-hmm. again. Like she she didn't care really mm-hmm. about the money side or about what other people thought of her and i guess this kind of leads us into the 60s because this is when other people are starting to pay attention to her and are being really inspired by this 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 mystical free spirit bohemian woman who keeps just kind of appearing in places mm. and then disappearing again and her art is becoming popular now like she's getting notoriety so she's got a bit of a name for herself yes yeah. so she's selling enough paintings that people are starting to pay attention to her even though she has way more that she's not 
yep. selling. Yeah. She attracted the attention of a young filmmaker who now but now goes by the name Flame Sean, but was formerly Diane Rochlin. Uh, and she joined Valley and Rudy in the mountains to film a documentary called Valley, the Witch of Positano. And that's where that kind of tie come from. Yeah. Comes from the film went on to win Best Documentary at the um, Mannheim Film Festival, by the way. And many people who were inspired by Valley Myers are inspired by her because they encountered this film. Yeah, right. So Joni Mitchell saw this documentary and then she wrote the song Ballerina Valerie, as long with, I think... Oh, who was it? Was it Donovan maybe who saw the documentary? Patty, lots of people saw the documentary were very inspired by her. So she basically went into the mountains, stayed with them, recorded them at their home, recorded her artwork. And this, yeah, made all kinds of fashionistas and artists fall in love with her. And then they started trying to emulate her style. Mm. And so I don't know if we can credit Valley Myers for the beginning of hippie fashion, <laughs> but she was definitely doing it well before the 60s and then obviously into the 60s a lot of hippies were very inspired by her look but at the same time as looking like this kind of disheveled gypsy valley always looked distinguished you know Mm. like she had this real confidence about her and a way of moving through the world i think that comes back to what we were talking about before Mm -hmm. it was just this innate part of her being speaking of people who were influenced by her um in 1967 she was invited by donovan the musician oh yeah good old donovan (laughs) to dance at his concert at royal albert hall and he had been a big fan of valley since he was 16 he discovered her in these jazz photos from paris and for him she is definitely a muse like Mm -hmm. a muse in the sense that he kind of projected all of his fantasies about what this ideal bohemian woman was You know, she represented the perfect bohemian woman to him. And so she came along to, she agreed to come to Royal Albert Hall. She danced on stage to his song, Season of the Witch. And I don't know what it looked like. Uh, And apparently... When um, I look out my window. That's my Donovan for you. Thank you. No worries. So Uh, many. Anyway, Karen. Apparently Flame Sean was there filming the documentary with them in London, but she wasn't allowed to film the concert. So she filmed it in like double time and distorted it. Ah. Yeah. So Does that still exists? Footage exists, yes, but it's distorted footage. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you should find the documentary. Yes, the please. Positano. I haven't seen the footage, unfortunately, but I like to imagine her as being like Kate Bush. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, I'll pay that. Mm-hmm. In my mind's eye, she is doing Wuthering Heights. Yeah, sure she is. Yeah. <laughs> That makes perfect sense. <laughs> to yeah. Donovan's season of the witch. Yeah, I get it. I like it. Another like classic Valley move about this whole this whole story was that um, Donovan asked her what she wanted in payment and she said that she would like one Nubian goat. <laughs> I wonder if she genuinely thought he was going to get her a Nubian goat. Well, or if she did. was just being, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Do you reckon she was just totally being just ironic and yeah, stupid? Yeah, she was probably like, Oh, Donovan, I'd like a Nubian goat. And he's like, I will take that literally. Yeah. And I will get you a motherfucking Nubian because goat. Because you are Valley Myers and I will do anything for you. That's terrific. I like it a lot. Another artist who was very influenced by Valley Myers was Patti Smith. Yes. 
she also grew up with her bedroom walls plastered with images of her as a 14-year-old. And um, she had a run-in with her heroine in New York in 1971 in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel because that's where everyone goes. Every, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. where else are you going to run into anybody? Yeah. And so she saw Valley Myers walking past. She's like, had this freak out. She's like, oh, my God, that's Valley Myers. What should I do? She got her shit together, approached Valley, and asked her to tattoo her. This is so much better than the time that I ran into my heroine PJ Harvey in a hotel lobby and backed into her and nearly pushed her over. <laughs> oh, you, should, you What you should have done is said, PJ Harvey, will you tattoo will you? my knee? Polly Jean, will you tattoo my knee? Yes. No, oh, I sorry, don't. of course. Yes, yeah, I know. She Polly doesn't Jean. like to That's go right. by. you got to go. Yeah, I shouldn't have called her PJ Harvey. Yeah. I should have called her Polly The Jean. band is PJ Harvey. That's right. Yeah. Anyway. So she, uh, Myers tattooed a lightning bolt on Patty Smith's kneecap. Oh, she said it was a tribute to Crazy Horse. Of course it was. Yeah. Obviously it was. And so at this time, like I said, she was obviously... Did she just tattoo her knee in the, in the lobby? Did she just happen to have with her all the... tattoo gun? All the accoutrements necessary for tattooing someone's... Does she just carry that around? Yeah. Good. Yeah. It seems so. <laughs> It seems so. I'm not, I don't know if I actually know if it took place in the lobby, but... I, uh, Valley Myers would definitely just tattoo you with uh, some ink from a pen she found on the ground yeah. and, like, a, a needle she took from a sewing kit. She probably does. That's how she tattoos yeah. you. She doesn't need a gun. You should She's ask Patty gonna... Smith. Yeah, we should. We'll ask <laughs> so at this time she was obviously hanging around in New York. She was back and forth to New York, like I said, kind of selling her paintings just to make enough money to kind of keep going. But here she met Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol was like, Valley Myers, what are you doing? Uh, don't sell your originals, sell prints. Yes, that's where the money's at. Yes. So that was some good advice. Um, she also caught the attention of Salvador Dali. He was really into her work, which I think is not surprising. <laughs> yeah. If you look at her work. He advised her that she should go to Amsterdam, where she would have probably a really good chance of exhibiting. So she did that. She had this hugely successful exhibit at the Gallery Dimitrios in Amsterdam. Oh, thanks, Salvador. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice, everybody. If Salvador Dali gives you advice, Take follow it. it. So she is now, in the early 70s, really becoming like a, mm-hmm. a proper on-the-scene artist, mm-hmm. taken mm-hmm. seriously by artists and by critics. She's there. She's made it. I think her art is really we've already said otherworldly it is kind of surrealist so it's not surprising that salvador dali would be into it it's funny because it's kind of like we've talked about similar artists before and i think i was thinking back to when we were talking about leonora carrington Mm because i think she's another artist that has that similar kind of like use of symbolism and alchemical and natural and all of that sort of stuff is all very much tied up in the art. Like we mentioned that she paints her animals and she paints mm. self-portraits, but then it's also tied up with, as you said, like that mystical sense yep. that really comes through as it's well. really kind of primordial. Mm. So in that way that it brings nature and the sacred together, I think. Quite mystical. It draws on the sacred, the divine, the feminine, the natural and the spirit world. Apparently she painted things that she had envisioned in trance states. So a lot of her paintings also have this kind of psychedelic quality. Yeah, yeah. And the colours are so psychedelic too. Yeah. yeah. And they're yeah, kind of somewhere between the physical and the metaphysical. And like you said, that's all of that alchemical symbolism. Very influenced, I think, by symbolism. She also 
paints a lot of, I mean, this is my reading of her paintings, but to me they are just kind of like pouring with the divine feminine, like mm-hmm. the sacred mm-hmm. feminine. Sacred, is, yeah, for sure. Is just dripping from her work. Yeah. Like, and she painted figures like Madonna, uh, Shahrazad, um, witches. And I've got a quote from her. She said, I use the mythical Madonna figure a lot in my work. The center of life is female. We all come from our mothers. I've always drawn women or female spirits. I feel deeply about this. Who gives a damn about some guy on a cross? My mother's creativity was smothered after she married and raised a family, but she was supportive of me. Even my father expected me to carry on in her footsteps. I prefer to have no kids, but lots of animals. Mm. Woman up to mine, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Good, yeah, but that's true though, isn't it? Because that's what comes through her art is the figures she the figures she paints are feminine figures. She paints those feminine nudes and those bodies mm. and the, and mm. mixed with those the animal and the natural. Yeah, and and Carlo McCormick, he's a New York based critic. He describes and this is in Nightflower. He describes her work as self reflexive, private and intimate, but in a way that is quote wholly arcane, secret and esoteric. He says it's. Feminine but fierce, her elemental goddess forces may play into her idiosyncratic construction of identity, but also speak most clearly to a potent vision of womanhood. Not so much people as anima. Maya's Mm. women are unleashed in that feral domain that lies beyond the clinging humanist grasp of civilization and culture. And yet, most poetically, the uninhabited remains tethered by the virtuosity of craft, the irrational always guided by some fearful symmetry as if manifested by chaos of the highest order Yelses. oh wow that's just like whoo yeah man that's everything i'm into in one <laughs> brief paragraph but it's interesting though as well because that also plays directly into that binary of feminine nature masculine yes. culture totally. like it does it totally plays into that binary yes that we spend so much time trying to deconstruct yeah. but also at the, at the same time also really celebrating and rejoicing in when you see it used by somebody like mm. Valley Myers. Mm. And this is how I feel about that binary because, I mean, I've, I've spent five years trying to figure out this like thing that I felt that was inherently feminine in certain creative practices, but at the same time not wanting to reduce anything to a binary. And I, I think it's just that what we need to do is divorce that concept of, of feminine and masculine from male and female or woman and man. Mm. Mm. We need to accept that this is a that there is a type of creativity that is of that is of chaos and that is of nature and that is of that unbridled sexual creativity and it doesn't mean that it's you have to be a woman to make that work although mm. we do see a lot of women making that work of course men can make this work as well but it, it's just that it's that type of work that we have classified as being quote unquote feminine yeah but like anything i think it exists on that kind of spectrum Mm. and it's not attached to your biological gender it is just this kind of creative force i think that happens to bring these ideas together yeah yeah if that yeah (laughs) yes very much so oh gosh that was my thesis in a nutshell everybody (laughs) you just summarized a hundred thousand words right there (laughs) if only you'd done that 
five years ago. I know, right? It anyway. would have been such an easier task. Yeah, it took but. me a long time to... Un- yeah, anyway. So she's working on her painting. She's becoming famous. Everything's starting to happen. Meanwhile, back in Positano, this is the same time when Gianni has come into her life. And so they are, have entered into this really intense kind of spiritual connection. Gianni, he, you should watch his YouTube videos, the way he talks about her she is a goddess to him you know but the two were also really devoted to that like wildlife sanctuary and they spent many 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 years working together against the kind of bureaucracy that would would really prefer that these two weirdo artists not like hang out in their valley disappear um they spent many many years kind of fighting to establish this wildlife sanctuary and they did they did end up protecting the valley and its inhabitants and it has since been endorsed by the world wildlife fund and gianni like i said he's still there he's still protecting the valley he's still continuing this work and it is a valley also by the way where they don't have electricity they don't have gas Mm. They don't have running water. Like they are, they were living off of the land. They were vegetarian. I mean, obviously I think that probably goes without saying, but they were also vegetarian back when it was not really a thing to be vegetarian. And also apparently like in this space, she would meditate a lot. And where she worked, she had this loft bed, um, which was overlooked by the Madonna of Sorrows. (laughs) And so I just imagine her in this kind of, you know, squirreled away in her hut with all of her animals, dozens and dozens of animals around her, the Madonna of Sorrows (laughs) watching her as she meticulously paints these amazing, gorgeous things that are coming from this spirit of herself, you know? So, yeah. (laughs) They did have a few visitors to the valley. Uh, one of them was married. To the valley. To the valley and the valley. Il Porto. The valley. To the valley the, and the valley. To valley and the valley. To valley and the valley. Oh, my God. Yes, yeah. of course. Gosh. It's all I, good. I don't know how that slipped by me. <laughs> um, one of these was Marion Faithful. Oh, no, that's, that's pretty cool. Yes, it is pretty cool. And she wrote about this visit in her memoir. And of the visit Valley wrote, Marion Faithful turned up one day with her boyfriend to see some of my work. I thought, who is this scrawny little guy? So I said to him, what is it you do, Mickey? How would I know who the bloody hell Mick Jagger was? I wasn't interested in Mick Jagger. I was always into Marion. She was the real fighter. <laughs> so, but the joke there, by the way, if anyone doesn't know who Marion Faithful was, is that she's Mick Jagger's... Uh, well, she was a musician. Yeah. I would say she was a musician first. She was a musician, but I think like so many female artists, she's associated with her male artists. And this also takes us back to Ushi Obermeyer as well. Yes. Who also was a lover of Mick Jagger. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So that's why I didn't want to say his name before I told that story. (laughs) Right. Now, they lived in the valley for 20 years. Doing, doing this, carrying on, painting, looking after their animals, setting up the sanctuary. But unfortunately, in the early 90s, um, she started to suffer from seizures. And so she returned to Melbourne in 1993. She said that coming back to Australia was totally revitalizing. And she found the city hugely changed since she'd left like 40 years ago, which mm. I mean, yeah, these days Melbourne is, you know, the kind of cultural, I suppose, cultural capital of Australia, really. It's sort of celebrated for its art scenes and of various kinds of music, visual art, theatre, all kinds of exciting things happened in Melbourne. So it would have been very different. Mm. 
Um, she said when she returned, she said, when I came to Australia, I felt I could breathe again. I love the openness of the sky and the people. They're unshockable. <laughs> Which again must have been in huge contrast to the people of 40s Melbourne who yeah. I feel like were probably very easily shocked. Well, this I think this is when she came, like, she was on the radar. Mm. I remember her being on the radar in the 90s. Yeah. So obviously with her return... Australia probably did that thing that Australia always does where it's like, oh, there is an Australian and they went out into the world and got famous. We love them now. Welcome home. Let us embrace Welcome you. Welcome home, famous person, yeah, yeah. person who got famous internationally. Oh, my God, we love you. Yeah. This is definitely why we knew about Valley Myers because yeah. she'd obviously come back at just at that time where she was cresting on that mm. wave of international fame that Australians just love to yeah. embrace. At the same time, though, Australians do have tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. So. You can't trust us. <laughs> they you can't cut trust you down. us. We'll be like, hey, you're great, but don't think you're too great. We'll cut you down. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So she opened a studio in Melbourne. Um, she spent the next 10 years of her life mostly working here. She did visit Positano and New York, but not terribly frequently. Her health was starting to decline, I think, by this point. Now, unfortunately, she, when she was 72, she was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And this is, well, the end, really. And she knew it was the end, but she's Valley Myers and she didn't give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> literally, these are her words. I don't give a fuck, she oh, yeah. said. I've nursed dying animals and I know what I'm in for, but I've lived the life I wanted to live and I've done everything I wanted to do. Mm. She also said in the hospital on her deathbed, she said, I've had 72 absolutely flaming years. It doesn't bother me at all because, you know, love, when you've lived like I have, you've done it all. I put all my effort into living. Any dope can drop dead. I'm in the hospital now and I guess I'll kick the bucket here. Every beetle does it, every bird, everyone. You come into this world and then you go. <laughs> Very accepting. 72, though. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Well, but it's also not that old. It's really. not all that old, but I mean, for somebody who was living on the streets oh, yeah, yeah. in Paris mm. and sequestered away for three years in a hotel room yeah. with an opium addiction. She did pretty like, well. Like, she did very, very well. Yeah. And also the sort of person who just, when I hear stories like this, I feel so terribly guilty about all the time I waste doing nothing. Yes. Oh, my God. Like, they make me feel very unproductive, these stories. Yeah, uh -huh. And I'm just generally overcome with guilt yeah. about wasting any time yeah. whatsoever. I have to say, after spending a weekend almost exclusively with Valley Myers, I, I have to say, I spent the weekend with Valley Myers reading these essays about her and just looking at her pictures, the pictures of her and of her paintings. And I, at the same time, I, I was also listening to... I was listening to um, Hounds of Love because... Is this why you imagine her dancing like Kate Bush? Well, it might, maybe. <laughs> this is how that connection like happened. It felt like a very appropriate match. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I have to say, it was quite a good combination. I do recommend that you look at look at Valley Myers' paintings and listen to Hounds of Love. Uh, really good combo. <laughs> but I did then spend a bit of time just sort of going like, oh, God... This is what I want to be doing. It's this kind of work that taps into the same spirit that she was tapping into. But I just don't always have the energy. Like, <laughs> I'm so tired. Like, when, when do I have time to do this work? I felt equally inspired 
and tired. And exhausted. <laughs> I'm so expired. It's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I was also listening to some poems of Sylvia Plath's and she was fucking prolific and she wrote a million, like a poem a day. And I was just like, mm. oh, what's my excuse? Anyway. Well, your excuse is uh, doing deviant women. You yeah. Know? It takes a, lo- a lot of time. <laughs> it takes up a lot of time. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's it. That's Valley Wise. I had a fabulous time on my weekend with her. And so she she died in the early thousands, didn't she? She died February 2003. Yeah. Because I, I recall seeing an exhibition in the early thousands mm. in Sydney of her work. Did it blow but you away? It did. Yes, indeed it did. Yeah. yeah, very much so. So if you haven't seen any of Valley Meyer's work, then obviously this is one of those episodes where you should be Googling pictures. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm going to put a bunch on Instagram. Don't you worry about that. But also I really recommend you check out Nightflower, the life and art of Valley Meyer's. And also the um, Utra Gallery in Melbourne. They still have uh, a lot of her work. Um, so if I you're actually, in Melbourne. If you're in Melbourne. Get along. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I wish we were in Melbourne. Oh. Well, it's not that far, you know. We could go. It would be pretty easy yeah. to get there. <laughs> but that's fine. She's such a an influential woman. I think that everybody should look at her because I think as soon as you look at her pa- paintings and if you look at images of her, you will start to see connections in popular culture that mm. you maybe didn't realise were there. Like I was saying before that I realised, thinking of the Mighty Boosh, uh, and a lot of Noel Fielding's costumes and art like really remind me of Valley Myers. Mm. And I can't, of course, say for sure whether I know that Noel Fielding is inspired by he's Valley Myers. He's telling her, but he probably is. I feel like he's very inspired by Valley Myers. I think Florence <laughs> Florence Welsh is also very inspired by Valley Myers. Of course, we've already talked about the influence of, um, that she had on Patti Smith, on Donovan. Mm. Um, she has inspired countless artists, and I have no doubt that she will continue to inspire many more. Mm. Um, she inspires and she might, me. she might even inspire you out there in yeah. podcast listening land. So, yeah, jump on the gram, check her out. The gram. Is that what they're calling it these days, that's what they the call kids? The, that's what the kids call the Instagram. Jeez, I can't keep up with the kids, you know. I just can't <laughs> keep up with them. Anyway. <laughs> That's uh yeah that's it that's it for that's it for the week. Oh well thank you. I've really enjoyed going down this path. I think she's a really really not just interesting but influential yeah. figure to look yeah. at. One of these women who we see return, I think, again and again mm. all over the place. Mm. Mm. Do we have any idea where we're going to go next time? Well, it's up to you. Oh, it is up to me. You're the leader next week. Oh, you know what? We might stay in the realm of art. Oh, good. Is that is that acceptable? Acceptable to me. Well, if it's acceptable to you, then that's what that's we'll really, do. That's really all that matters. That's all boss, that matters. We're the bosses of this podcast. No one else has a say in it, do they? <laughs> Fabulous. And speaking of art mm. and female artists, mm-hmm. if you'd like to hear even more about yeah. other female artists... Just recently, Lauren and I did speak for International Women's Day. Uh, We were very lucky to be invited along to the Tea Tree Gully Library as their keynote speakers for um, International Women's Day. And we happened to to choose 
a female artist to talk about. It was Artemisia Gentileschi. We discuss her paintings in particular, the influence of her paintings, the impact of her paintings, the recurring overlapping influences that she had. And we dipped our toes into some of the, the biblical and mythological figures who inspired her works. Yes, the bad girls of the Bible. So if you want to hear that, we are going to post that on Patreon, the recording from that session. So you can join Patreon for a little as $2 a month. And because it's also Women's History Month, how even more appropriate. It's definitely the time. Yeah. So if you would like to get on board, you can hear that along with a bunch of other blooper reels, holes in history, lots of fun things you can find on Patreon. So please get on board and support us there. And of course, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcasting app of choice. So jump online and leave us a review or subscribe if you'd like to support us that way. Please do. And also you can buy merchandise on our Etsy store if you'd like to support us that way. And remember, we are at Women on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So follow us. We hope to catch you there. And as always, a very big thank you to Brenda Davies for the sound and India Hui for all the music. And we will see you next time. Bye.